Welcome everyone to Andy Here's the 80s, the show where we try to find the absolute best albums from the 1980s. Here in season two, we examine the work of a different artist or band each episode, and this week we are diving in to the six studio albums of Miss Grace Jones. Joining me as always is my co-host Aaron Keck. How are you, Aaron? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, you know, uh, Grace Jones is someone I couldn't wait to learn more about because she has such a unique career, I think. You know, model, singer, actress. Um, what was your experience going into this with Grace Jones? Mostly the look, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I hadn't listened to very much of her music. I I know of her as an actress, but I haven't seen any of her movies um not a not an 80s bond fan uh Mm -hmm. so like i was i was kind of going into the the music cold um i I certainly know of her as kind of an iconic figure of the 80s and i mean being gay i kind of have to know her a little bit for that reason (laughs) as well she's a she's an icon for the lgbt community as well but uh but yeah in terms of the music um yeah, it was it was mostly brand new for me, so I was excited about it. Yeah, kind of the same. I, I mean, yeah, the look is definitely like she has an iconic look, and mm-hmm. even like some of these album covers. Even if I hadn't heard the record, I, you you could pull these. You've like, seen the album covers, yeah. yeah. I exactly. appreciated reading up about the albums, and there was so much about. She, I mean, she starts as a fashion model, so like it makes sense mm-hmm. when she when she gets into music, like she kind of sticks with that uh, that really not just iconic but unique look uh, that becomes such a such an important part of of her persona through the '80s. But like every single album, when you're reading about it, you're reading about the music and the reaction to the music and the response and the reception and everything. But oh, this album cover, oh man. Man, this is a completely new direction for Grace Jones. She broke the mold and just went off in a completely new direction and opened up uh, new worlds of possibility for what an album cover could look like or what a recording artist could present themselves at. And that was every single cover. It was like a brand <laughs> new thing for Grace Jones. So like she she did a lot uh, visually as well, uh, just in terms of, uh, presenting herself as a, as an artist in the eighties, in addition to, in addition to just the music, like the visual aspect is huge too. Yeah, definitely. I think the only, probably it, it's possible. The only song I've heard of hers is she has a, uh, song that she's a guest, uh, makes a guest appearance on, on one of the gorillas albums. And so mm-hmm. that might've been the only song that I've heard her perform in before this, which actually I think is the same for Marky Smith uh, from the last episode too. He was on a gorillas track that I think at the time I assumed <laughs> they hired like an actor or something. Cause I didn't even know yeah, who Marky yeah. Smith was, but yeah, that sounds same... about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But at least at that, at least I knew who Grace Jones was as a person, you know, going into this. Cause it is yeah. like, she's unique in that, in her look and her style and, and, career yeah but, uh, and and uh, another plus over marky smith following this uh, listening to all of these albums and reading up on grace jones and learning about her uh, i still like her after <laughs> after all of that as opposed to marky smith who's like man you were an ass yeah i know she comes out looking pretty good actually yeah uh, uh, she put out a uh, autobiography in 2015 called i'll never write my memoirs which i read for the episode <laughs> which uh, is really great and I think it actually is one of the rare books that is like equal parts entertaining and insightful, which was nice. She had a lot of interesting stories, but also had some details of the of her creative process, which I appreciated. Uh, but it was that was a really fun book to read, which I recommend. Uh, but let's dive into her story here. Uh, Grace Beverly Jones, born in Jamaica. Sometime in the late 40s to early 50s, she, she says in the book that she never really kept track of her age. Uh, hmm. Now, Wikipedia lists her birthday in May of 48, but I've also seen it reported as late as 1951. So who knows really when she was born? Somewhere but, uh, in there. Somewhere in that range. Uh, she When she was around five or six, her parents... Uh, moved to New York to establish their life in the States. Uh, her father was a preacher, setting up a uh, church there. Uh, and so she would, she and her siblings would be raised by her grandparents for the most part for the next several years. Uh, and she had a very strict religious upbringing on Jamaica. And then it, it wasn't until she was 12 or 13 when she and her siblings uh, moved to New York with her parents uh, up in Syracuse. And she kind of decides that's really when her life can begin now because she's out from under this strict uh, 
church family from Jamaica. She's in the States, and now she can kind of finally start to branch out a little bit. Everybody who has a strict religious upbringing goes in one of two directions, right? Either they become strict and religious as adults, or they just go all the way in the opposite direction, and they become Grace Jones, right? Yeah, even in that There's family. There's no middle ground. There, yeah, she has, I think, a brother who also went off to run a church somewhere else in, in a different state. So yeah, even yeah. within the same family, they can go in the two directions. Yeah. Uh, she went by her middle name, Beverly, as a kid. And now, once she moved to the U.S., started going by Grace, first because that's what the teachers would call her because it was her first name. And then it also gave her a nice, a nice clear demarcation of you know, her new life in the States. Uh, she and her siblings, especially her older brother Chris, would go, uh, you know, have their rebellious teen mischief as they sneak off into the city, you know, go out drinking, doing drugs, finding clubs, and that's kind of where she gets the first taste of the world that she would come to inhabit later. Uh, she got into theater and music as time went on, and ultimately uh, began modeling, which led her to move to Paris in the early 70s. And by the mid-70s, she began to dabble in singing, recording a few demos that would eventually lead to her first album in 77, Portfolio, with producer Tom Moulton, uh, recorded at Sigma Sound in Philadelphia, actually. Uh, She moved back and forth between New York and Paris for a while before settling back into New York City. Uh, And that album became uh, kind of the first thing to put her on the map with some of these big singles like uh, I Need a Man and La Vie en Rose, released in 1977. those kind of disco hits were some of the big things that broke her through in the music scene and uh, that would be the first of a trilogy of disco albums followed by fame in 78 and music in 79 did you listen to any of these albums i did not i i, I meant to go back and then i didn't yeah i gave them a once over um just on apple music and yeah they uh, they are good disco albums i think mm. the the cool thing is um and this is apparently something that uh, tom moulton was kind of known for was the first side of all of these was basically one continuous track. You know, the songs were all strung together as a, okay. you know, 20-some minute disco medley. That's good. So the DJ could just stick it on at the club and just play that for 20 minutes and take a break. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that. And she mentions that too, like, you know, these extended remixes of some of the songs that would be coming out. She figured were exactly so the DJ could have something on to go to the bathroom during it. So that he oh, yeah, to totally. Yeah. What what he would do in the bathroom is up to uh, up to his own discretion, but I'm sure it was totally <laughs> totally above board. <laughs> totally above board. Uh, but by the time seventy nine eighty rolls around, you know disco is waning, and Grace begins searching for a new sound. Uh, so she's collaborating with the head of Island Records, Chris Blackwell, who signed her and released those disco albums. And then they head to Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas and enlist a band of musicians who would become known as the Compass Point All-Stars, with uh, Sly Dunbar on drums, Robbie Shakespeare on bass, Barry Reynolds on guitar, Michael Chung on guitar as well, Wally Batterow on keys, and Uzziah Thompson on percussion. And they would assemble you know, a list of covers, an eclectic variety with a couple originals in there, to craft a kind of new funk rock reggae pop direction for and release first album that we'll talk about, Warm Leatherette, in May of 1980. Uh, Chris Blackwell produced it along with Alex Sadkin, and the cover photo was taken by fashion photographer Jean-Paul Gaud, who was Grace's partner at the time. I'll play a little bit of a cover of a song we actually heard last season, Private Life, and then we will discuss the album.
Yeah, that's a great song. It's a great, I mean, all of the album, this album is full of covers that do that perfect cover thing of completely reinventing a song for your specific style, right? Mm -hmm. It's also a great, and I, I understand like the title of the album is taken from one of the songs, so okay, but it's a great album title, right? Mm -hmm. Warm Leatherette, like how many better album titles have we gotten in any of our two seasons so far? Yeah, it's the perfect, like it's just evocative there. title. Yeah. And just the that song in particular, some of these, since so many of them are covers, I tried to look up, if I wasn't familiar, I looked up some of the original versions. And that the original version of Warm Leatherette by a band called Normal is, uh, it's almost like a craftworky kind of, mm -hmm. like electronic, very droney, repetitive. I, this is, that song, it made me like her version even more hearing the original, like it's completely transformed. Yeah, you listen to all the originals. How how did they compare? How, how how big of a difference was there here? I think there are pretty big differences between most of them. I mean, you know, we heard Private Life, the Pretenders version we heard uh, last season. Mm -hmm. uh, that that actually might I might call that the closest one in that it's kind of the same tempo still at least. But I think her version is a, is much more, uh, you know, kind of seductive and more more that i mean it's in the bahamas on island records it's a very tropical still kind of sound yeah but uh they're all pretty they're all pretty different or warm leatherette's probably the most different uh the two originals rolling stone and bullshit are both i think they fit in alongside these two and are really great those are also my two favorite songs. So like I, I appreciate that this is an album of covers, but Bullshit and Rolling Stone are they're 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 both on my like I ranked the songs in order of preference, and those are my top two from this album. And uh, they either uh, without spoilers, they were either on or came very close to being on my top five for the for the whole for the whole oeuvre of six albums that we'll be talking about. Uh-huh. Nice. The, yeah, for me, I, the one-two punch of Warm Leatherette and Private Life, I thought, was a, just a great start to the record. Yeah. And yeah. I actually really like uh, the closing track, Pars, too, the, which is all in French. Which oh, that's I funny. Cool. I That might have been my least favorite song. I was, I was reading about Grace Jones while listening to the album, and I was reading that, as you mentioned, like she had recorded these three disco albums. Disco was uh, was in decline, and she was trying to, to find a new sound. Uh, and this entire album kind of felt to me like I'm still a disco artist. This is still basically disco, but we're we're laying other genres over the top of it and trying to turn it into something else. But it's still kind of fundamentally a disco album with disco songs. And I wrote that about maybe halfway, two thirds of the way through the album and then got to pars at the end, which is just like the epitome of that. Like pars to me just sounded like a disco song that had been slowed down down uh 
maybe maybe not for you but but for <laughs> me that's that was immediately my reaction like she she could branch out further from disco and she will in later albums but i don't think it quite happened here i think that's fair i think definitely the first couple listens it wasn't my favorite but for some reason it grew on me i thought it was a good mm. a good way to come down like at the end of the record is it, it worked well as a closing track for me i think my least favorite actually might have been uh, breakdown the Tom Petty cover and I'm not a yeah, huge Tom I wasn't Petty a fan huge fan of that one either that's but why that's, you didn't like it well, that's probably right but I actually I, that is probably if I was going to pick a Tom Petty song I would, uh, that's might be my favorite and mm. I, so that's the only one on here where I actually do prefer the original probably yeah. to her version so that's, that's the problem when you, when you get a song that you really really like and then someone else covers it in a different way you're like why why are you doing that the song was perfect as it originally was <laughs> and this one is you know it's different but it's it's still not yeah i don't know it didn't quite have the same punch like that private life did where i was very familiar yeah. with the original but thought that this one still added to it ask me how i feel about that hawaiian cover of over the rainbow <laughs> How do you feel about that Hawaiian it cover? It sucks, of Andy. It's terrible. <laughs> it's certainly overplayed. Switched all probably... the lyrics around so it doesn't even rhyme anymore. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I think Damn I it. liked it the first time I heard it, and then maybe a little less every time. Yeah, that puts you one up on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, going to complain about something this album. <laughs> might, might as well be the Hawaiian cover of it. <laughs> Well, those uh, recording sessions on Compass Point were so fruitful, in fact, that uh, many of the recordings kind of spilled over into the next album. So with a few more sessions in 81, Grace Jones released her fifth album, Night Clubbing, in May of 81. Uh, I'll play the track, uh, pull up to the bumper, and then we'll discuss the album. This one was actually one of my favorites on uh, this album, and it was mm-hmm. it's one of the uh, originals on here too. Yeah, mine too. And this was this was also just a, a for me a big step forward in terms of moving away from disco versus warm leatherette, which made mm-hmm. it interesting when I then went back and discovered that a lot of night clubbing and a lot of warm leatherette were recorded at the same time so i i listened to this and thought wow this is a this is a big leap forward but she did it at the same time so whatever whatever works i guess i think it was kind of the same case of like um you know with x with los angeles and wild gift you know they're kind of songs from the same time but they Mm -hmm. just picked the two batches that kind of fit better together yeah uh but yeah, this one is, it, I kind of felt the same way. I liked it even more than Warm Leatherette, which I already liked a lot. Uh, it has a great, Walking in the Rain is a great kind of low-key opener. Walking in the uh, Rain is such a good song. Yeah. Uh, and then the song Art Groupie has the uh, line that she pulls then for the title of her book, I'll Never Write My Memoirs. Mm-hmm.
which I thought was fun. And a nice callback for a book that comes out 30 years later. Yeah. In a, for a song that actually isn't one of her big songs, right? Like, yeah. I don't think yeah, she could have easily really makes the greatest hits compilations. Right, yeah. She could have easily called the book nightclubbing and it would have made just as much sense. But Right, right. Uh, but yeah, I, li- I like it. Or bullshit, uh, for that matter. <laughs> or bullshit, yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of titles that could have worked. Yeah, hey. But I think this is more, it does feel more like she is finding her footing as a non-disco artist still, right? I think mm-hmm. the Compass Point band is meshing well still, as, obviously as well as they did on the first one, since there are a lot of the same sessions. But I think it is it is that, it is a strip away from disco in a nice way. Yeah. Also another iconic album cover. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this one again is done, this one and her last one where Jean-Paul Gaud still on the, uh, doing the album yeah. art. Uh, and actually, on Warm Leatherette, the CD reissue uh, replaces the cover with a still from her uh, live concert one-man show, which is unfortunate because I think the picture and the regular cover is a lot better, which is then relegated to the inside uh, right. of the album art instead. But fortunately, Nightclubbing's uh, album art is intact. But yeah, this is certainly one of the album covers where like, I had probably seen this well before obviously well before Mm -hmm. i heard the album because i didn't hear it until this month but yeah that's the thing like i've seen all of the album covers without having heard any of the actual music i think it's the thing with with grace jones is like the the visualness of her as an artist and have lasted maybe longer than the music did or was more ubiquitous than the music which was just sad because the music is actually like really good and really consistent through all of these albums Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean her look all throughout her life really has been something that has it made her stand out in a crowd for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. moving to the U.S. as a kid, as this tall Jamaican woman with at the time like an afro when nobody else did, and then then as she got older, shaving it into this flat top and donning these Armani suits, like just bringing out the androgynous look that would uh, kind of become more trendy as time went on. She was like a trailblazer. I'm trying for that. to picture Grace Jones with any other hairstyle but that flat top, and I can't do it. I know it's like it's part of her it's right. part of her at this point yeah uh, but she would follow nightclubbing rather quickly again with a third of what would generally be referred to as the compass point trilogy uh, her sixth studio album living my life released in November of 82 I'll play a little bit of the opening track my Jamaican guy and then we'll talk about that album Now, this one is nearly all uh, unique songs. There's only one cover on the album, and I think uh, you can hear it in My Jamaican Guy. She's she's becoming more comfortable in this new sound, uh, creating songs now as well as just transforming them. 
I also appreciate we've gotten we've had a couple of recent episodes where the the lyrics are very poetic to the point of almost being just prose poems set to music. X was one of those. We just talked about them. Uh, and in this album, I think Grace gets closest to that. Um, mm-hmm. specifically with the apple stretching, which is, was that Melvin Van Peebles who wrote that song? Yeah, uh, that's the, it's just, the one cover, yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, <laughs> it's just this great, like, you think about the iconic New York songs, like, you know, Frank Sinatra singing or, or Billy Joel singing from an Italian restaurant. Like, those songs are all fine and all, but if you really want to to get the feel of what New York really is, like, I don't think those songs do it. This song does it. The Apple Stretching, like, that that takes me back to my own, like, memories of New York in the middle of the night, and I don't have any memories of New York <laughs> in the middle of the night. Like, I, I wasn't, like, a party guy who was out there at 3 o'clock in the morning, but, man, it feels like I was after hearing that song. Yeah, I love that song too. It's yeah. uh, as you mentioned, Melvin Van Peebles wrote it initially for his uh, 1982 musical titled "Waltz of the Stork," uh, and she covers it here in a way. Yeah, it's completely like brings such a image of the city to life, mm-hmm. literally in the chorus. Uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites on the record for sure. Yeah, but I uh, my Jamaican guide the title or not the title the leadoff track that we played. That's an that's a good one too. I think she has good. That while obviously coming up as a disco artist now she's found a way to make dancey songs in a different style too mm-hmm. and i think that she does a good job this one uh, with all three of these i ended up liking each one more and more surprisingly mm-hmm. uh, like this might be my favorite of the three okay i'm i, I think i i think i lean more for more towards night clubbing for what's my favorite of the three but they're all they're all really really good and you're right like she she does a lot of different stuff with dance music to the point where you take some of the songs off of living my life like a lot of these are slower songs that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being dance tracks but yeah you, know, you close your eyes and you imagine okay it's the club it's one o'clock in the morning like we're gonna ease it up a little bit and it's just like the perfect vibe for uh, for just a certain time of the night when you're in the club. Like, yes, this is exactly the song that I want to be listening to and moving to. Maybe not yeah. on the floor, but like at the bar watching the empty floor before we before we all get back on again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And she obviously knows all about that. I mean, she's mm-hmm. one of the key members of that late 70s New York nightlife that yep. she's that's why the apple stretching sounds so her, even though she didn't even write it. Like she just... Yep. It's kind of, it's almost like that wouldn't even sound out of place on like Lou Reed's New York. Like they just know that nightlife yes. so well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of similarity here, like between between Grace Jones and Lou Reed. And I mean, it's partly the delivery of the, the vocals, the, the talk singing that, that both of them do. But mm-hmm. it's that, you know, both of them were just imbued with the like New York art scene, Andy Warhol, like they're they're experiencing the same things, so they're singing about the same things. Yeah. And so once that trilogy is complete, she shifts her focus to acting now, starring alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger in 1984's Conan the Destroyer, opposite uh, Roger Moore, as we mentioned in his final James Bond film, 1985's A View to Kill, as the villain May Day. I haven't seen uh, the Conan movie, but she I have seen View to a Kill, and I have to say she's woefully underutilized. I think <laughs> she barely has any lines, but anytime she's in a scene, you can't look anywhere else on the screen. Well, she's Mayday, right? She's, gotta, she's, the, she's the henchman. She's got to be either mute or practically mute. Otherwise, it's not a Bond movie, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I haven't. I, I've not seen a view to a kill, so I can't really say anything. I did get on YouTube and I watched a clip of Grace Jones from a view to a kill, or at least I watched a clip that was advertised as being Grace Jones in a view to a kill. But what I actually saw was her sparring very briefly with Christopher Walken, and then this absolutely ridiculous, poorly edited, pointless three-minute fight scene in some kind of box factory. Um, oh my God, I've only seen three minutes of that movie and it looks terrible, but I did, uh, I do have great memories of playing as Mayday in the, uh, in, <laughs> in the, Goldeneye. <laughs> in Goldeneye. Yeah. In college. Yeah, that's true. 
That's my Grace Jones connection, playing as Mayday. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that might actually be mine, too. <laughs> Whenever my friends yelled at me for playing as Odd Job too many times, and I had to switch characters. <laughs> from the shortest to the tallest character. Lest, lest they beat me up. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, View to a Kill is like, uh, I mean, it's an entertaining bad movie at the very least. Okay. I don't know. Uh, I will it, take your word for that 100%. Uh, it's funny she she mentions uh, that scene. There, at least part of the scene you saw where she's like sparring with Christopher Walken, and then it ends in like them passionately kissing. <laughs> that she, she said on a uh, oh, we'll go with ish on passionate there, but yeah. okay. But she was she was very proud of the sexual tension they built up in that scene, as mentioned okay. in the book, and then was disappointed when that was cut on the airline version of the movie she watched one time. <laughs> oh, I know. Damn it, Delta. <laughs> cutting all the good but, stuff out uh, she had split up uh, with Jean-Paul Gaud by this point uh, although they did remain friends and uh, she actually met a handsome Swedish bodyguard during an Australian tour of his or of hers uh, and they began seeing each other beginning her several year relationship with Dolph Lundgren who she actually was able to wrangle a small part in view to a kill for him making that his uh, his big screen debut uh, but by the end nice. of 84, she begins uh, working on some new music now, this time with producer Trevor Horn. Initially, they went to record just a single, but over the course of the next year, that ballooned into an entire album based around that single. And on October of 85, Slave to the Rhythm was released. I'll play a little bit of the opening track, Jones the Rhythm, and then we will discuss the project. Rhythm is both the song's manacle and its demonic charge. It is the original breath. It is the whisper of unremitting demand. What do you still want of me, says the singer? What do you think you can still draw from my lips? Exact presence that no fantasy can represent, purveyor of the oldest secret, alive with the blood that boils again and is pulsing where the rhythm is torn apart. How your singer's blood is incensed at the depth of sound. Lacerations echo in the mouth's open erotic sky, where dance together the lost frenzies of rhythm and an imploring immobility. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Grace Jones. Jones, the rhythm. I'm sad on behalf of this song that it was the second single off of this album, which I know we'll talk about the the nature of the album being just kind of eight versions of the same song in different forms and fashions. But the the initial track that got released, I think, is far inferior to Jones the Rhythm, but that's the one that took off. So when they released Jones the Rhythm, it's like, yeah, it's the same song all over again. Why are you giving us this? And then it never hit. Like, that's the the best song off of this album, I think. 
Yeah, so we have uh, Al Swearingen himself, Ian McShane, op- doing that opening monologue. Uh, and he also records some passages of Jean-Paul Goode's uh, book, Jungle Fever, elsewhere on the yeah. album. Uh, but yeah, the single was actually, uh, it's the last song on the album, uh, is what they released as a single, and then confusingly retitled it when it was put on the full length uh, to Ladies and Gentlemen, Miss Grace Jones, rather than Slave to the Rhythm. But yeah, this this is such a incredible opening track to start off this kind of transformation of this one song over eight different, you know, eight different tracks. But uh, what do you think of the thing overall as a project? So two thoughts about it. Number one, we have talked before and, oh, God, who, oh, no, I'm blanking on who was the who was the band that we talked about where they would release all I all I can think of is Joy Division. And while that makes while that's correct, I know that's not the band I'm thinking of where they would release and they would release a single and it would be huge. And then they'd release an album at the same time, but it didn't have the single on it. And they did that like three times in a row. Probably New Order with uh, Blue Monday. Uh, yeah, maybe it was, it was one of or, those. Anyway, yeah. like several several artists in the '80s did that, yeah. and it's, I, I have to assume, like, if I'm a fan of the song, and then I go and buy the album, and there's, n- and not only is that song not on it, but the the rest of the music is completely different. Like, I would feel like I've wasted my money. So I think this is perfect. Like, you release an album or you release a song, and it's a big hit. It's like, okay, we're gonna release an album. If you loved that song, you're really gonna love this album. And you buy it and you get exactly what you wanted when you paid for the album in the first place, which is just that one single over and over again, eight different times. Like that's giving the audience what they want. (laughs) First of all, um, the second thing that I thought was this is possibly... And I'm kind of okay with it because, like I said, like I like Grace Jones. I'm I'm totally down with this, but this has to be the most like self-indulgent project i have ever listened to in my life like it's all it's one song done eight times interspersed with several different people talking about how awesome grace jones is and then half of the songs are named after grace jones like not very many people would be able to get away with this but i think she did yeah it's true to if anybody to if anybody point. else yeah released an album that was all about themselves including interview clips with yeah. themselves and about themselves and reading from people's books written about themselves <laughs> like it would be seen as probably the most self-indulgent thing of all time whereas somehow if Marky it, Smith had done that I would have cut the show <laughs> off right then and there yeah we would have not gotten through the rest of the album after that, but <laughs> somehow it comes off not that way I it's think, all right, right? yeah yeah I, I think it's very cool the way it's and even the sequence of this, you know, it starts off with that explosion and then you kind of each track are introduced to a new element that is then going to carry over yep. into that final track, uh, which I think is really cool. It basically Trevor Horn kind of crafted the album over the course of almost a year, calling up Grace every so often to bring her in and discuss what he's working on and have her add in some new bits here and there. And it ended up obviously going way over budget than what they thought, considering it was just going to be a single. But yeah, I think it's I think it's really cool, and I even love like even the little instrumental pieces, like the second to last song, "Don't Cry." It's only the rhythm. Yeah, like, just the the weird little stereo pings and stuff, especially if you're listening in headphones. It just sounds really cool. Also, I want Ian McShane to read every book to me from now on. Yes, <laughs> the, I would sign up for Audible right now if I if He's I had got an option. A great audiobook voice. Yeah, I I want. Every book, there should just be the option to have <laughs> either the author and then also Ian McShane. Like, those are the only two options. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Grace Jones was here. <laughs> yeah, he always, for some reason, slips back into Jones, the rhythm. <laughs> that would improve but, a lot of books. <laughs> probably, I yeah, probably would, actually. All right, so I want three options. Then I want the author, I want Ian McShane, and then I want Ian McShane slipping into Jones the Rhythm every so often. Yes, yes. Uh, but this is this would be uh, another cover, of course, done by uh, Jean-Paul, uh, which is another iconic cover that I'd probably seen a million times without hearing it. And uh, this would be then the last album released on 
Island Records. It was actually kind of a co-release because it went so over budget. Capital pitched in to help finance it uh, under the assumption that then they would get the next uh, couple of Grace Jones albums. So this would be the last album on Island as she sort of transitioned to a new contract with Capital. Uh, she starts to uh, develop her next one after this, uh, but she this time wanted to go with a different producer as well. So she calls up uh, someone who's actually an old friend, uh, Nile Rogers, which she was friends with back in the early Chic days, uh, who is, as we've heard a few times in this uh, show, has become quite the prolific producer during the 80s as well. Uh, she calls him up and gets him to be a producer on the album as well as play all of the guitar and bass parts. Uh, Bruce Woolley would co-write every song with Grace as well as play the percussion and synths, and she would co-produce each song with Nile as well. Uh, the resulting album Inside Story would release on November 14th of 86 on Capitol's Manhattan label. I'll play a little bit of Victor Should Have Been a Jazz Musician, and then we will discuss Inside Story. into this song and i was hating it and then it grew on me like by the oh, end yeah. it's like this is one of my favorite songs of the album this is great he you know I kind, of, I kind of picked it as the one to play for this because i was like i really want to know what aaron thought of this song <laughs> i thought exactly that like it started out like i do not know what the hell anyone was thinking who was trying to make this song and then like by the end it's like okay all right i see this yeah, it is one of my favorites on there too. And I think this is another kind of eclectic mix of songs, but this time, again, like transforming her sound again to be a little mm -hmm. more, slightly more radio pop, still not fully like mainstream sounding, but tweaking again, taking the Grace Jones feeling and lyrics and blending that into, you know, a slick Nile Rodgers produced album. This to me is the most kind of schizophrenic of the albums in terms of extremes of quality. Like some of the best mm -hmm. Grace Jones songs are on this album. Victor Should Have Been a Jazz Musician is really good. That's probably in my top 10. Uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for you. That is going to be in my top five. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the that's kind of the hit off of this album. And then this album also has just some of the absolute worst songs uh, of the the entire six albums set like i never need to hear chan hitchhikes to shanghai <laughs> ever again for like a whole bunch of different reasons um and there's a couple yeah. other songs that are just kind of absolute duds which i don't think she has on any of her other albums really like she's got songs that are better than others but this album was like this song's really good this song's terrible this song's good this song sucks like back and forth and back and forth the whole way through yeah, I, I can see that. I think it definitely is, while being eclectic, it's probably less consistent than some of the older ones. Uh, Victor was one of my favorites. I liked uh, White Collar Crime towards the end of the album. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I'm i fine not hearing Barefoot and Beverly Hills. Uh, see, again, that so. one I liked. Like, that was another <laughs> one like Victor. I was just about to mention that. Like, that was another one where I was like, okay, I don't like this at all. And then like two minutes in... Uh, it was, I found it growing on me. I did well, listen you, to it again and liked it less. So I think part of it is just, is, is first listen, but, uh, you, but that, that ended up being one of my favorites on this album, actually. 
Yeah, I I didn't mind it the first few times, but then the the closer I listened to it is when I started liking ah, it less. Because gotcha. <laughs> I was like, see, that's okay. your mistake. Listen to it once and then just move on to the next thing. At first, you know, I thought it was going to be kind of like a, uh, you know, I thought it was going for like a Jenny from the Block J Lo thing of like, you know, I'm I'm still walking barefoot, but now I'm in Beverly Hills. Right. But then the verses are literally just all the things that she's comfortable walking on top of <laughs> with bare feet. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you've kind of lost the plot, I think. But uh, overall, I think this one is still pretty fun. Uh, I, I like the uh, the the musicianship in general. You know, obviously Nile Rodgers is is a great producer and musician, so I think he sounds great. I think uh, she still is. I think there's actually a she shows a good vocal range on this one that she hasn't always shown on every album. I think she can often get stuck in that kind of sing, talk singing kind of range, whereas this one she is able to kind of successfully project uh you know a couple different styles which uh i was excited to hear but yeah overall it is a little hit or miss uh and then so after this she would return to acting again uh appearing in the punk rock western spoof straight to hell uh and as well as the movie siesta both of which i had never heard of until because she didn't even mention them in her book but i'm looking at both of these going i how have i not even heard of a bad sign <laughs> it probably is, but now I feel like guarantee I guarantee you, if I got to star in a Hollywood movie and then twenty years later I wrote my autobiography, I would mention that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting too, the movie Siesta was directed by Mary Lambert, uh, whose name you might recognize from our Prince episode. She was originally going to direct Under the Cherry Moon before Prince took over and directed himself, and oh, she yeah. basically started work on Siesta right after leaving Cherry Moon. Uh, and that became her first feature film instead. But Did you uh, watch was... Siesta? No, but I okay. I feel like I want to now. I was going to say, you've seen Cherry Moon, so I wanted, I wanted a comparison. but Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm going to have to watch it and report back, probably. It's shot in Spain, stars Ellen Barkin, Isabella Rossellini, Martin Sheen, Jodie Foster, and Grace Jones. Has a score by Miles Davis. I mean, it's, it feels like it's checking too many boxes for me to a never a lot heard of, of boxes yeah oh you'll appreciate this this is not a grace jones thing but it's a prince thing uh mm-hmm. so maybe worth leaving in this episode uh my other podcast <laughs> is this like best of best of each year and is a movie podcast like where we try to recognize the best movie of each year uh that's that stood the test of time uh and you know we've talked about this like we reach out to film scholars and we ask them like rank your favorite movies of 1973 1965 1957 mm-hmm. 1983 uh and we got uh, we i'm starting to get some we're, we're only on the 40s now and we're working our way through uh, but some of our film scholars are being really uh, eager beavers, and they've they've gone they've gotten way far ahead. Uh, and I got the votes back from the rankings back from one film scholar uh, from Vanderbilt, who's actually doing this by getting a whole bunch of her friends together who are also film scholars, and then they talk and they come up with their rankings from from each year. But I got nice. the votes back from the '80s from her, and wow. both Purple Rain and Under the Cherry Moon are in their top five for their respective years. And it's like, that is a <laughs> room full of Prince fans right there. Hell yeah. <laughs> I respect it. Yeah. And that, where can they find this podcast, Aaron, if they want to listen to it? Uh, TheMoonlightAwards.com, Andy. Oh, very nice. It sounds like fun. And also like on Spotify and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Search The Moonlight Awards. I'm sure you'll find The Moonlight it. Awards. Yeah. That was uh, my shameless plug. You can delete it. It's fine. <laughs> oh, no. If, if this episode, I mean, we're plowing through these records so i feel like we should get a little bit of (laughs) other stuff in here anyway uh but by this point she and dolph have broken up now too and her uh current partner chris stanley steps in to produce her next album for capital as well as co-write most of the songs and that collaboration results in her ninth studio album the final of the 80s bulletproof heart released in october of 89 i'm going to play the song dream and then we will discuss that record Dream, 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 dream. You better wake up and face reality. 
interested to see what you thought of this album too because uh, i found it a little <laughs> uninspiring gen- in general uh uninspiring okay yeah. um that's that's a little wordy i have one note uh on bulletproof heart and the note is meh yeah <laughs> oh and and i also noted that the that the title track is basically a, a disguised remake of the way you make me feel by michael jackson but that's a side note <laughs> Yeah, I can see that or hear it. But yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, the production on this one actually kind of sounds the most dated of the ones that we've heard. Um, yeah, it's fine, but yeah. The early I don't stuff think, is better. Yeah, I, I mean, even Inside Story, I would listen to again probably before this one. Uh, yeah. You know, skipping a couple, but I think it's more fun still. There's still more energy to it, I think. Uh, fun fun fact from from my listening, like I'll, I'll listen to a lot of these albums on Spotify. Not all of Grace Jones's '80s albums are on Spotify, so I had a little mm. bit uh, more trouble finding the music here. Uh, Bulletproof Heart, I had to get on, I had to get from YouTube videos, and I kind of had to cobble it together from people's YouTube videos. So when I was listening to Driving Satisfaction, which is my favorite song off of this album. Um, the YouTube video that contains driving satisfaction is this guy who just records dash cam footage of himself driving on highways around the U.S. and then super speeds up the footage and sets it to music. So I listened to driving satisfaction while watching this random dash cam video of some guy driving on Route 5 in Vermont from uh, Canada <laughs> down to Massachusetts. I don't know if that made the song better or worse or if it didn't have any effect, but like that's the visual in my head is like driving through all of these forested roads and small New England towns while listening to Grace Jones. I think that's just how Grace in- intended for you to hear I, it. Probably, <laughs> <Sounds> yeah. <laughs> I, I think it probably made it more exciting, I think. <laughs> this one Maybe. It was just a little, like I said, it was, I was... It was a little uninspiring, just to put it nicely, probably. But, it did end up but, being my favorite song off the album, so it certainly didn't hurt. I kind of the one we played, "Dream," which was listed as a bonus track on the CD, even though it kind of falls in the middle of the track list. Uh, was I, I, that one was when it kind of grew on me, even though it's kind of sounds like an early or late '80s, early '90s like anime closing theme. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of it kind of grew on me. Uh, there's another bonus track. Uh, which is a duet with her and Chris Stanley, uh, which probably should not have been <laughs> put on the album. I don't, did you hear Don't Cry for Freedom? Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, that one I probably could have done without. Yeah. But uh, the actually what might be my favorite is the last song, uh, Amato Mio, which is the only cover on the album. It appears... Yeah, that uh, one... Yeah. It's uh, first, you know, maybe you'll cover this movie on the moonlight i don't know but uh 1946 film gilda starring rita hayworth is where the song comes from and that i think that ended up might be my favorite one on the album it is the most different from the others on the Uh, album right i think that's that may be why and it could also be that i've been watching a lot of uh, eurovision videos over the last few weeks too and it sounds like it could be a eurovision song as well yeah Begin tonight, Amado mio, 
So I'm sure Although in fairness, it. a lot of Grace Jones songs could be Eurovision songs. Uh, that's probably true. Maybe not the apple stretching. I don't know if that would make it out of the finals, but no. Well, for for one, they have to be three minutes long, and that's <laughs> at least twice that. But mm. but yeah, Bull, uh, Bulletproof Heart was a bit of a flop commercially as well. Uh, and so after that, she became very discerning as to who she would work with and what she would release, uh, which ended up with a couple of boarded records in the 90s. Uh, and ultimately, she wouldn't release another album until 2008's Hurricane, uh, which is still her most recent album. Uh, she would continue to act, appearing in films such as uh, Boomerang with Eddie Murphy in 92. And her most recent credit, which is another movie I now want to track down, is a rock and roll silent film starring her as the devil alongside Iggy Pop, uh, Henry Rollins, Lemmy from Motorhead, Slash, Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age, among others, uh, called Guder Damerung, which is <laughs> written by a uh, Swedish director and may not be available in my region. I'm going to have to look, but I feel like I have to see it now. Now I need to see this. <laughs> uh, it sounds remember? like the movie Kevin Smith wanted to make when he ended up making Dogma instead. It's, yeah, very well could be. Uh, we have, oh, what if Alanis Morissette as God and Grace Jones as the devil? Right? That's a good combo, isn't it? <laughs> I hope on the other end of, of this pandemic, we can get them together to collaborate. <laughs> um, sure, we'll get right on that. Yeah, that's dear the first Grace, thing dear I'm Alanis, do. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> My name is Andy. I have a podcast. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I have a real small favor to ask. <laughs> no biggie. Just do you want to do this movie? Uh, her memoir, as I mentioned, was released in 2015. Uh, she's done at least a handful of shows almost every year since 2001, though not this year, obviously. Uh, but I will certainly go out to a show of hers if one ever can happen again as well. She's still out there. Uh, but now let's get into our favorite songs and albums. I feel like they're going to, there could, uh, like every week, I, I never know whether they're going to overlap or completely not overlap. I feel overlap. like we're going to have some overlap here. I don't know. It's it's not going to be total. Well, let's start with your uh, top five Grace Jones songs. Top five. Uh, this, el- this, this episode is the first time in a while, and I can't remember the last episode where this was the case, but all five of my top five are from different albums. Um, mm. The only album not represented is Bulletproof Heart, as you can probably imagine. But uh, mm-hmm. number, five, number five is I'm Not Perfect, But I'm Perfect for You off of Inside Story. Number four is Bullshit off of Warm Leatherette. Mm-hmm. Um, number three is Jones the Rhythm. Uh, number two is The Apple Stretching off of Living My Life. And then number one off of Night Clubbing is Walking in the Rain. Feeling like a woman. Looking like a man. Sounding like a no-no. Making when I can. Whistling in the darkness, shining in the light, coming to conclusion, right is night, is time, walking, walking in the rain. Nice. Yeah, mine almost had one from each album. I ended up the ones that I liked from Inside Story ended up just outside the top five. Okay. But uh, there is a little bit of overlap. Uh, so five for me is uh, Warm Leatherette from Warm Leatherette. That's I thought, especially after hearing the original, I was like, oh my God, she completely transformed the song and made it amazing. Uh, number four for me is uh, 
uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the last the last version of the song. Uh, okay. From Slave to the Rhythm. All right. So actually, now it it's only four because I do think that it's best heard ha- at the end of the album, not necessarily by itself, but it is still one that I think is is worth recognizing. I go back to Warm Leatherette for Private Life. I ended up yeah. liking that cover a lot. Uh, number two is Pull Up to the Bumper from Nightclubbing. And then that number one... Is, that one is my number six, by the way. That one is a really good one. Uh, this is definitely my favorite from Nightclubbing. And, and like I said, my, my second favorite overall. But the number one uh, is the Apple Stretching from Living My Life. Yeah, that's so I good. I think it's amazing. Yeah. A cop whips out his gun, fires one, and yells, Freeze! No, it ain't World War Four. No, it ain't World War Four. It's just the outlaws stretching in your feet. Just morning. New York putting his feet. that keeps apple stretching from being number one for me is the fact that it is seven minutes long and like while it's a great poem in order to be a great song i feel like there needs to be more of a i don't want to say i don't want to say the song is monotonous but there's no there doesn't there's not really like an up and downness to Mm -hmm. it like it's just kind of flat for seven minutes and it's great like it paints this amazing picture but uh, walking in the rain got a little bit of a boost for me just because it was slightly shorter, like she got in and out faster. So if we mm-hmm. did do the apple stretching as a Eurovision song, cut it down <laughs> to three minutes, two verses in and out, that would be the perfect Grace Jones song. And there she would go. win Eurovision. <laughs> well, that'll be Maybe. that'll be project number two right after yep. her movie with Alanis. Yeah, play the devil with Alanis as God and then win Eurovision, <laughs> and then your career will be complete, Grace Jones. Yes, we've got it all figured out. Then your legacy will be secure. Oh, <laughs> speaking of which, um, favorite album cover? Ooh, that's a good question. Let's see. I've got an I answer think... because I was thinking about this question earlier, but... I think it's either it's either Slave to the Rhythm or Nightclubbing. You're right, yeah. I... That's, that's what it comes down to for me, too. I think... I would probably, I would sooner probably put nightclubbings on my wall. I think that's the, the one I'm going to decide. I think okay. I would sooner put that one up, but okay. Slave to the Rhythm is very close. I, w- I went with Slave to the Rhythm just because I felt it was more fun, but mm-hmm. uh, I think, but yeah, nightclubbing is a better like wall poster cover, so I'll go along with that too. So which one was your favorite musically album? Which one album would you pick? Nightclubbing. And I would go Slave to the Rhythm. <laughs> okay. I think just as an album, I think that's the one I would go back to and listen start to finish more often. But yeah, any of the Island records, I think, are fantastic. And all the all of the three of the Island trilogy are kind of, would be second place any given day. But I think Slave mm-hmm. to the Rhythm is the one complete album I would pick. But that about wraps up 
our episode on Grace Jones. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to Grace Jones for the memorable music. Thank you to Paul Morley for co-writing the book. Uh, Paul Morley, by the way, I don't remember if I mentioned, but he is one of the interviewers in Slave to the Rhythm. So she brought him back to when she went to write her memoirs. Uh, but I also, of course, want to thank you to Aaron for joining me. Thank you. Uh, next time, we will be t- taking a listen to the albums of the power pop band Game Theory, uh, including a compilation of previously unreleased material that just uh, was released earlier this year. So stay tuned for that. Uh, until then, don't forget, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. I'll see you next time. During the time between recording and posting this episode, I tried to track down and watch as many of the films starring Grace Jones as I could and put down some thoughts on all of those amazing performances. You can check that out along with the show notes at acton.wordpress.com. It's acton.wordpress.com. Uh, don't forget to check out the Moonlight Awards, Aaron's classic movie podcast he mentioned. Go to moonlightawards.com or search for it on whatever app you're listening to this show on. That's a great show. Uh, follow this show on Twitter at AndyHearsIt, Facebook.com slash AndyHearsIt. Email me at AndyHearsIt at gmail.com. Rate and review the show and tell your friends. Uh, let me know, too, what your favorite 80s tunes are and which 80s albums I still need to hear. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next one.